Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is the features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist with international experience, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk's daily opinions section. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And now, here he is, the Brit with the wit, Ben Schiller. Welcome to Opinionated. We're joined today by two very special people. First of all, we have Jill Carlson, who is co-founder of the Open Money Initiative and an investor with Slow Ventures. She's also, I'm pleased to say, a columnist with Coindesk. In the last few months, she's produced a lot of great columns on a wide range of topics from Goldman Sachs to censorship to avatars and more. We're also joined by Emily Parker, who is Coindesk's global macro editor. In a previous life, Emily worked at the U.S. State Department as well as the uh, New York Times, and Coindesk is very lucky to have her. We're going to talk about a big, big controversy today, which is the so-called Coinbase apolitical stance and a little context here. Back in June, following the protests in the wake of the death of George Floyd, many employees at Coinbase looked to CEO Brian Armstrong to take a political stand and to say as a company that Black Lives Matter. And he seemed at first to do that, but then seemed to go back on that and uh, shut down some internal debate. And it basically came out about 10 days ago with a definitive statement saying that Coinbase was not going to be a political company and that any employees who disagreed with that stance could uh, basically shove it and leave and take a severance payment. So it's fair to say that this controversy has uh, divided the industry and and Silicon Valley generally, with many people agreeing with Armstrong that their company should be more nonpartisan and many other people saying that he was basically being tone deaf in a era of heightened political sensitivity and particularly racial unrest. So we're going to look at this from uh, a number of different angles. I'm going to start with Emily's great column today in Coindesk, which was titled Coinbase's mission in quote marks violates the spirit of Bitcoin. And Emily are basically arguing that the kind of key big ideas of Bitcoin, including its uh, censorship resistance and its neutrality, are violated by this uh, statement from Coinbase, which uh, otherwise calls itself a Bitcoin company. So do you want to just talk about what you were getting at with the piece? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here. So I wanted to point out that it seems to me that Armstrong wants to have it both ways. He wants to be apolitical about these disruptions that are making him uncomfortable while being political about Bitcoin and Bitcoin's mission to disrupt the world. He basically said that in a reply to Twitter CEO's Jack Dorsey, Armstrong said, We are political about one thing, our mission. This includes Bitcoin, crypto, economic freedom, etc. So that's what kind of got me thinking about this. I don't think that every cryptocurrency company needs to represent the values of Bitcoin, but Armstrong basically said that he did. So I thought it was worth asking, okay, does Coinbase's new mission really represent the values of Bitcoin? And my feeling is that no, not at all. First of all, one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that it is a truly revolutionary, disruptive technology that doesn't take any political sides. It's embraced by people all over the political spectrum. The Bitcoin community, if you can even call it that, is completely decentralized and is all over the map. And I would argue that Armstrong's position is not in that spirit at all. He claims to be apolitical, but I think it's actually a form of advocacy that is disguised as neutrality. I don't actually think it's neutral at all. I think in that sense, it's very different from Bitcoin. 
I also think that Bitcoin is disruptive and people come into Bitcoin and they come into this industry because they're excited about this mission and they're excited about changing the world in some sort of big way, which is, again, something that Armstrong says that he believes in, but then also wants to quash disruption. So I don't think he has the disruptive spirit of Bitcoin. And then on the censorship resistance, I think this is an extremely important point. One of the main ideals of Bitcoin is that it can't be shut down. It's a kind of decentralized technology that can't be shut down by governments, by anybody, really. And so a lot of people in the cryptocurrency world really believe in this idea of censorship resistance. But I would argue that Armstrong's position is, in a way, a form of censorship because it's basically setting guidelines for what can and cannot be discussed at work and in a sort of vague way. And I think that kind of censorship sometimes is actually even more dangerous because it leads to self-censorship. It's sort of issuing this very vague declaration about, you know, where these vague lines are. And I think for Coinbase employees who decide to stay, they might not know what is acceptable to say and what is acceptable not to say. And this could actually lead to excessive self-correction. So I also think that is not really in the spirit of Bitcoin. So would you say he's sort of morally a hypocrite here or just uh, just wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know if I can really, you know, gauge his moral compass, but I would say that this isn't a particularly coherent position is what I would say. It's sort of strange to be like, I'm political about this mission to disrupt the world as we know it, but like, don't cause disruptions in my company. I just think it's not very realistic. And I think, you know, if you embrace disruption, I mean, disruption is disruption. And of course, I understand what the motivation was behind this, that, you know, sometimes these political divides can really hurt the productivity of a company. I think that's a reasonable position, but I think that this kind of blunt instrument approach, it's not really appropriate for the complexity of the world in which we live. Interesting. So Jill, I mean, if you're a company in this space, are you required to live the values of Bitcoin or can you remain neutral on these big debates? Yeah, look, I mean, I think absolutely not. I think that companies are obviously free to do what they want, to define culture how they want. But I think that Emily raises a really strong point here just in terms of the coherence of what a company is doing and standing for and perhaps, yeah, getting at some level of hypocrisy there. And I think that, you know, in particular, her points around coming back to censorship and really recognizing that, yes, obviously the generous view of what Brian and Coinbase are aiming at here is that they are, in some sense, trying to defend diversity of thought and fighting for tolerance in the workplace and tolerance of differing opinions and dissent and so forth. Because to me, it's very obvious that this is kind of coming from a backlash against a lot of the woke culture that a lot of companies across Silicon Valley and really the world in general have adopted over the last three, four months in particular. But even before that, it's a backlash against that. And I think that you know, you can make this case that, okay, he is therefore defending diversity of thought and fighting for tolerance. But again, I think that if you look at what was actually said and what is actually being called for in that memo, it reads a lot more like censorship to me than it does that more generous view of it. And so I think that it's spot on that that is incoherent with the mission of Bitcoin, which is fundamentally about freedom. And I think that Emily does a really eloquent job of defining that. That said, again, Coinbase is 
its own independent private company and can define culture how it will, but it is worth calling out that dissonance. There was a big uh, wide piece this week looking at some of this sort of internal debate uh, inside the company. I mean, I think it's sort of possible that Armstrong just kind of had enough of this debate and just wanted to kind of get on with business and they've got an IPO coming up and he just sort of said, to hell with this, uh, we're just going to shut this down. But um, a company like Coinbase is sort of on a hiding to nothing. If, if it comes out with a stance, then some people are going to criticize that. And then if it doesn't have a stance, then people are going to criticize that as well. I mean, it seems like you can't really win with these discussions. I certainly agree that in this environment, it is a no-win situation. But I think that that's a product of the environment being so polarized. And I think that the environment became so polarized really by driving a lot of speech and, and opinions and freedom of thought underground. Look, I think that the sort of woke side of the equation has as much to do with that as anyone. You know, I think that cancel culture is very dangerous. I think that the fact that a lot of more moderate people and opinions feel that they can't speak on issues around identity and social justice, et cetera, for fear of being canceled is deeply problematic. But I think that the path forward is better charted as a stance that really champions free speech, as opposed to what I'm reading anyway, Coinbase has done here, which is to draw a bright line in the sand in the other direction, which is to say, well, if some of us feel like we're living in fear of cancel culture, then we're just going to create an environment where nobody can sort of speak openly and freely about this. And really what he's championing there is the ability to focus. But what I think that it misses is that that's kind of a zero-sum argument because not everyone will be able to focus in an environment that is calling itself apolitical. You know, certainly that protects and defends the ability to focus of some, and those are going to be those who are sort of defended by the status quo. But it is going to be a massive distraction for others. And by and large, those others will be those who, who don't feel protected by the status quo. So I think that that's also really worth calling out is just kind of the irony of, okay, he wanted to create an apolitical environment of focus, at least in the short run, I think that the exact opposite has ensued. Just to piggyback on that for a second, I think Jill makes some really good points here that are important to raise. And I think Jill and I are very much on the same page here. We're not saying that like every single issue should be on the table and everything should be able to disrupt the company. I mean, obviously there is a need for some sort of case-by-case moderation here. And yes, there have been excesses on both sides of the political divide. There's no question about that. But, you know, the other point that Jill raises, like a very important term here is status quo, right? And this is where I think Armstrong's position is very misleading because he's claiming to be neutral and apolitical and not taking a side, but he is taking a side. He's siding with the status quo. And it's a status quo that whether you agree with them or not, many Americans are deeply unhappy about, you know? So it is a position. And I think, again, that's where the incoherence comes through. It would almost be more honest for him to just say, like, I like the way things are. I like the status quo. This is my position. But he's claiming a kind of false neutrality. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion and anger is coming from. I mean, it depends if you think silence is complicity or whether silence is just silence, I guess. Well, but I think on that note, Ben, and Emily highlights this in her piece, there was another piece put out over the weekend by a couple of financial bloggers called Margins that I think articulated this really well, is that silence is tacit 
advocacy for the status quo, right? Let me pull up the direct quote here from the posts that I'm referencing. Political apathy is not a neutral stance, but a strongly conservative one by definition. When there are competing forces, one trying to pull you in a direction, another one forcing you to stay where you are, saying that you're not moving, that is picking a side. And I think that that's a really important mindset shift that is deeply uncomfortable for those of us for whom the status quo actually does work quite well, but just realizing that you are picking a side. And that, again, I think comes back to a really important difference between the sort of stated position of Coinbase as being apolitical versus something like Bitcoin, which is this kind of fundamentally neutral tool. And I think that that incoherence, again, is important to highlight. So what uh, practically do you think is the way forward for companies facing issues like this? I mean, how do they uh, navigate this territory? Big question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to start, which is just to say that I think that it's a big reckoning of company culture, of the trade-offs that a company is willing to make. And I think that Coinbase likely is losing out on talent here and also likely has created a large distraction for many of the employees, even those who stay, by approaching it in the way that they have. I think that that is a very hard approach to take, and I think that time will tell how effective it is. I think that you know it's important to note, again, just the trade-offs. It's been said, Paul Graham had a, a reaction to the post that he posted on Twitter saying basically that Coinbase may lose out on some talent, but it it won't be, quote, very talented talent. And so I think that that also just speaks to the nature of the trade-off of what does a company or what does a given person or leader or executive view as the talented talent who they want to attract? And I think that many, many companies would disagree that Coinbase will be just losing out on not very talented talent with this approach. So lots of trade-offs to consider. And look, definitely a very thorny issue for anyone who is approaching it. And in a way, I admire and respect Brian's at least very clear stance on it, because I think that there are a lot of companies that are just trying to bury their head in the sand and not say anything and not address it. But I do think that there are, in my view, problematic trade-offs that he's making with the stance that he's taken. Interesting. It's worth pointing out that Coinbase is no uh, ordinary company. You know, it's the largest uh, exchange in the business. It's coming up for uh, IPO. It's sort of a bellwether for the industry. What do you think the impact will be uh, long term of this controversy? Uh, I mean, do you think other companies will just sort of retreat from politics or will they take the opposite approach, do you think? I think companies will probably use this as an excuse to do what they might have wanted to do in the first place. So I think there probably are other CEOs who are like, wow, I wish I could do that. Oh, wait, that guy's doing that. Cool. I'm going to do that too. You know, so I think we could see that kind of ripple effect. You know, I think for the cryptocurrency industry, I mean, I think this is this is kind of a larger tension that actually is much bigger than the specific incident and much bigger than the specific memo, which is that Coinbase just kind of by its existence in some ways is antithetical to the ideals of Bitcoin in the sense that it's like a big, centralized, powerful institution, which in theory, Bitcoin is supposed to disrupt. And I'm not blaming Coinbase for being that, but it is that, you know, and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why it's kind of like a battle for the soul of crypto a little bit, you know, I mean, whatever the opposite of sort of punk rock 
Bitcoin disruption is. I mean, Coinbase is pretty close to that. <laughs> and I think that memo makes them really close to that. I mean, there's already these sort of two camps in the Bitcoin world, which I mean, there's many camps, but two of the camps, you know, on the one side, there's this revolutionary disruption, anti-authority, you know, and then there's sort of the more compromising, like, okay, you have to make certain compromises for mainstream adoption. And, you know, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. But the question is, is like, when do those compromises go so far that Bitcoin loses some of the attributes that made it so special and so different in the first place, you know? So I think Coinbase, just because of the way that it, it exists and its kind of DNA, is sort of in the middle of a lot of those controversies. And I think that that's coming out very clearly again with this memo, you know, just the fact that this decision by one powerful guy can send these ripple effects across the industry, you know, in and of itself is very different from what I think Bitcoin was supposed to be. And I think it's worth noting there, too, that the memo was explicitly positioned in such a way that its intent, almost its stated intent, is to send those ripple effects across the industry. This wasn't just like a quiet, you know, all hands meeting that got leaked. This was a public declaration on a public platform. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it is important to look at that. And Brian even calls out in the memo saying, you know, I hope that this can be useful to other CEOs going through this and exploring this. So, you know, I think that the intent, as I read it, there is certainly a, a sort of tacit intent, I'm sure, that was just him trying to get ahead of the news cycle so that this didn't get leaked and get published in Coindesk and TechCrunch the following day. You know, he could kind of control the narrative. But I also think that it's important to, to acknowledge the stated intent there of the piece and its positioning. Were you surprised by the dividing lines here, Jill? I mean, you're very plugged into the industry. I think that my greatest frustration was just sort of the levels of hypocrisy and, and sort of tone deafness that I saw where, again, three, four months ago, you know, back in June, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and, and protests, you had all of these same individuals, Brian included, posting Black Lives Matter, you know, we need reform, we need reform within the industry, within companies, etc. And to just think, wait, was that just, that was just sort of virtue signaling in the moment. And now we're seeing from the same people a really staunch backlash against those same sort of fundamental values. And I don't think that those people would necessarily agree with that statement that I just made. I think that many of them would say that these two things aren't in conflict. I personally can believe in what Black Lives Matter stands for as a movement and a cause and want to donate to it and so on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that I think that it needs to come up at work or be sort of a cause of social activism in the workplace. But I think that there, there's something very worth acknowledging, which is that Many of these people, these venture capitalists, these leaders in, in the tech and startup ecosystems, they're the very same ones who for years have put forward this notion that your work is your home and your colleagues are your family and you should come and work in Silicon Valley as opposed to going to a bank or going to McKinsey or whatever it is, because here you can work on something that's mission aligned. And it just feels to me in a way like we've come all the way back around the circle where that was kind of the contrarian view, you know, in the grand scheme of the world, being able to have your work be very mission aligned with you, being able to bring your whole self to work, being able to show up to work in a hoodie and feel like you're amongst family and friends. That was a very contrarian notion, again, in the grand scheme of the world. And now it's sort of like, 
we're coming back full circle where within Silicon Valley, the contrarian thing is actually to be very corporate and adopt this very kind of Milton Friedman-esque doctrine of we're here to create shareholder value and that's it. And again, this is where it comes back down to the whole mission of Bitcoin. And there are many people who leave investment banking to go into cryptocurrency and they're drawn to the mission, right? They're drawn to this idea of this unruly, disruptive, revolutionary technology. So there's definitely this tension between that mission and then but leave that all at home and don't bring that to work. But your work is also advancing that mission, you know, so it gets, it gets very incoherent. I think also, Ben, about your question about reactions in the industry, I, I wouldn't say I've been particularly surprised. I mean, I think it's been a pretty emotional reaction for a lot of people. I think some people who obviously strongly disagree with this, I think for other people, as Jill alluded to earlier, feel that cancel culture and woke politics and all that has gotten very out of control and that they feel very silenced. And I think they're for that reason, are supporting this. You know, they feel that these political divides at work have become very oppressive. And, you know, finally, somebody is coming to put an end to it. And so you're definitely hearing voices like that who feel that like Armstrong is representing what they see as almost in this political culture an underdog position. But again, you know, I would argue that I don't think his approach is really solving that problem. So I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much, uh, Jill Carlson. And thanks so much, Emily Parker. It's great to work with you both. And we look forward to welcoming you on here again. You can read Emily's piece about Coinbase on coindesk.com. You can also read uh, Jill Carlson's piece, which is also up on the site now. And stay tuned for another episode. We'll be appearing every two weeks. And please, if you have an opinion about crypto and the world out there, please get in touch. My email address is ben at coindesk.com. See you.